a cooking pot that helps starving pioneers stay alive. That first rescue party sees what it thinks are skeletons. A fighter jet vanishes into thin air. There was no debris ever found. There wasn't fuel in the water. There wasn't anything. And flocks of birds fall victim to a mysterious and deadly epidemic. We see thousands of birds flopping around in the mud or lying dead. I'm Don Wildman. Join me on a journey across the United States as we go deep into the vaults of the nation's most revered institutions, unearthing wondrous treasures from the past, extraordinary artifacts, and bizarre relics, each with a shocking story to tell and a secret to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. The Smithsonian affiliate, Michigan State University Museum in Lansing, is packed with Civil War relics, carved masks from distant shores, and animal specimens from long ago. But few realize that deep within the university's archives lies a crucial clue from a mystery that has fascinated criminologists for over a century. It's a chipped glass microscope slide, one inch by three inches. There's some yellowish appearance, so it's old. And then you see kind of a pink line going through what's on there. And that could tell you that maybe it's, it's some sort of tissue. What role did this slide play in one of the most infamous murder cases of the early 20th century? London, 1910. An American doctor named Holly Harvey Crippen is working as a purveyor of homeopathic medicines. Dr. Crippen was a very soft-spoken man. He was quiet. People liked him, but he wasn't a big social person. By contrast, his wife, Cora, revels in the London nightlife. She was very flamboyant, very social. She liked to go out. Everyone pretty much knew that Cora was having affairs. Then, on January 31st, Cora Crippen mysteriously disappears. When Cora's friends ask her husband where she is, he tells them that she's gone back to the United States. Cora's friends were surprised that she left without saying anything. That was unlike her. Her friends are puzzled, and their confusion quickly turns to suspicion. Cora wasn't the only one who had had an affair. Dr. Crippen had had a long-term relationship with his secretary, Ethel Leneve, and once Cora went missing, Ethel moved into the house pretty quickly. That really set off the female friends of Cora. Cora's friends contact Scotland Yard's chief inspector, Walter Dew, who agrees to look into the disappearance. On July 8, 1910, he arrives at the Crippen home to question the doctor. Dr. Crippen said that she had just taken off to go be with a lover in the United States. Inspector Dew feels sorry for the doctor and dismisses any suggestion of foul play. Although Inspector Dew is satisfied, of course friends weren't. If she is alive and well in the United States, why haven't they heard from her? Cora's friends insist the inspector stay on the case. But when Dew attempts to interview Dr. Crippen a second time, he finds the house deserted. Inspector Dew is down in the coal cellar, and he kind of 
kicks at a board that he finds is loose. So he removes the board in the floor and digs down a little bit. And there he discovers human remains. The body is so mutilated as to be unrecognizable. But Scotland Yard is convinced this is the corpse of Cora Crippen. Investigators immediately launch a massive manhunt for her husband. They flood the newspapers with reports that a suspected murderer is on the loose. But days later, there are still no leads. Dr. Crippen had basically disappeared. Weeks later, on July 22nd, an ocean liner called the SS Montrose is crossing the Atlantic en route to Canada. Among the hundreds of passengers are two people that look eerily familiar to the ship's captain. So he wires back to London that he thinks Dr. Crippen and Ethel, his lover, are on board. When Chief Inspector Dew receives the message, he races to Canada to intercept the couple. He catches up to the ship just as it reaches the waters off Quebec and arrests Crippen, charging him with murder. At the trial, the prosecution introduces a piece of key physical evidence, a patch of skin taken from the remains in Dr. Crippen's cellar and preserved on this slide. The big question was, are these remains Cora? If they're Cora, he's a murderer. A pathologist testifies that the pink line running through the slide is part of a scar Cora Crippen was known to have. And in the days before DNA analysis, this circumstantial evidence is all the expert has to go on. His conclusion? The remains must be hers. The trial took five days. The jury was out for 27 minutes before they came back with a guilty verdict. Dr. Hawley Crippen is sentenced to death by hanging. Dr. Crippen maintained his innocence every step of the way. And in his final writings, he said that someday something will come along to prove my innocence. Crippen is executed on November 23, 1910. But was the doctor truly guilty? Or would the words immortalized in his final writings ring true? Almost a century later, Dr. David Foran, a forensic scientist based at Michigan State University, is approached by a toxicologist long fascinated by the Crippen case. His interest was trying to find out if we could determine whether or not this was Cora. We have abilities today that didn't exist in 1910, and using DNA testing, we could actually do that. Dr. Foran compares DNA from the tissue with samples taken from a female relative of Cora living in the U.S. If that tissue is from Cora, it should be an exact match to her grandnieces, given they all share the same maternal line. But he uncovers a shocking truth. There's no way that that tissue on that slide was from Cora. After almost 100 years, the damning evidence responsible for Dr. Crippen's conviction and death sentence is proven to be something else entirely. If the body recovered in the cellar wasn't Cora's, whose was it? That we don't know. Where these remains came from, how they came to be in that basement, uh, how old they were, we just can't answer that. Though the fate of Cora Crippen and the reason her husband abandoned his house may forever remain a mystery, this glass slide archived at Michigan State University has given up at least one century-old secret.
jets, missiles, and rockets. These are just a few of the aerial wonders showcased at the Air Power Park and Museum in Hampton, Virginia. Here, one can stroll among the formidable relics of America's rich aerospace history. But one deadly fighter plane stands out from the rest of the pack. It's over 53 feet long. It's 17 feet high from the ground to the top of the tail. It had a crew of two. This is an F-89 Scorpion jet, a 25,000-pound straight-winged fighter that museum guide Michael Harrison says played an integral role in defending American shores. The F-89 was basically designed as an all-weather interceptor for any type of objects that we had that would come into our airspace. But on one fateful night in 1953, it seems the interceptor may have become the intercepted when an F-89, just like this one, vanished without a trace, defying all earthly explanation. It's November 23, 1953. American military personnel at Kinross Air Force Base in Michigan are charged with the task of securing the border between the U.S. and Canada. Most days on this remote airbase progress without incident. This day, however, will prove to be anything but ordinary. Shortly after 6 p.m., a ground controller notices an odd blip on the radar screen. Whatever aircraft it is, it's flying over the Sulox, a man-made waterway that connects Lake Superior to the lower Great Lakes, a passage of considerable strategic importance and an area in which no planes are permitted to fly. With the suspicious object hovering over such a critical area, the Air Force immediately takes action and readies the finest weapon they have, the F-89 fighter jet, and summons one of their most experienced pilots, First Lieutenant Felix Monclay, to investigate. At 6.22 p.m., Monclay and his radar observer, Robert Wilson, board their F-89 and fly through the dark, snowy night toward the mysterious object that is hovering over the upper Michigan Peninsula. The ground operators were looking at two different blips. They had the F-89 and they, they had the object in question. But while both objects are over Lake Superior, something alarming happens. There were two dots on the screen, and then they merged to one. The two aircrafts have seemingly collided. But seconds later, the ground controllers see something that utterly mystifies them. The unknown object continued on its original path. Monclay and, and Wilson just disappeared. U.S. and Canadian military personnel perform an extensive search, scouring hundreds of square miles. They can't find the crew, and they certainly can't find their aircraft. After five days, the military calls off the search. The plane and the men, they did seem to vanish. At a loss to explain what happened, the officials at Kinross Air Force Base are left with a handful of bewildering questions. How can a 53-foot fighter jet and two crew members literally vanish into thin air? And did the other aircraft in the sky that night have anything to do with the disappearance? It's 
It seems virtually impossible that a 25,000-pound warplane could simply vanish into thin air without a trace. But that's exactly what happened one night in the skies over Michigan when an Air Force fighter jet is sent to intercept a mysterious, unidentified aircraft flying in U.S. territory. December 1953. At Kinross Air Force Base, authorities have called off the search for an F-89 jet and its crew, First Lieutenant Felix Monclay and radar operator Robert Wilson. Without any sign of the plane, the airmen, or the unknown intruder, the Air Force is left scrambling to explain the baffling disappearance. In the wake of the bizarre incident, military authorities put forth a theory on the fate of the 25,000-pound fighter plane and the crew. It was pitch black dark. The pilot could have gotten vertigo, so maybe Monclay and Wilson had crashed. If that is what happened, then where is the wreckage from the accident? The Air Force came to their own conclusion that their plane crashed into Lake Superior. But some argue that the complete and total lack of tangible evidence defies all earthly explanation. There was no debris ever found of the F-89C that Monclay and Wilson flew that night. There wasn't fuel in the water. There wasn't anything. With no clues unearthed, the mystery surrounding the F-89's disappearance deepens, leaving skeptics pointing to one glaring unanswered question. What was the unidentified aircraft flying over Lake Superior on the night of November 23, 1953? The Air Force stated that the unknown object was a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 that had accidentally flown 30 miles off course. But there's just one problem with this version of events. The plane that American authorities claim accidentally flew into U.S. territory, Canadians say, never existed. The Royal Canadian Air Force stated that they didn't have an aircraft in the area on that particular day, at that particular time. Amid such conflicting reports, an extraordinary new theory begins to emerge. Some people believe that it was a UFO that was going across the lake at the time and that the Air Force has more information than they're letting on. One of the speculations that have come out of this is that the crew and the F-89 was abducted onto the spacecraft. So is the fateful F-89 at the bottom of a lake or on board an alien craft soaring through space? We'll never know actually what happened until we find them and their aircraft. And until new evidence sheds light on the case, this F-89 fighter jet remains on display at the Air Power Park and Museum in Virginia as an eerie reminder of a similar plane that disappeared without a trace. A section of the Berlin Wall. A gun carried by newspaper heiress Patty Hearst. And a bullet-ridden truck that shielded an intrepid reporter. This is the museum a Washington, D.C. institution dedicated to highlighting the role of America's free press. Here, among the hundreds of artifacts salvaged from world-changing events, is one particularly abstract display, comprised of four black and brown leather straps. There are many different belts at the museum of different shapes, sizes, and colors. They're all jumbled together because they were used by many different individuals. And as FBI agent Brad Davis can attest, these tangled belts weren't used for the everyday purpose for which they were designed. 
Instead, this knotted bundle played a key role in derailing a malicious plot that, had it succeeded, would have killed hundreds of Americans. And though the scheme eventually failed, it changed the course of domestic security forever. So how did these seemingly innocuous fashion accessories prevent a horrifying act of terrorism? It's December 21st, 2001. Charles de Gaulle International Airport, just north of Paris, France, is bustling with travelers, eager to get home for the holidays. Among them is one passenger headed for Miami who stands out from the crowd. Security personnel noticed that this individual was acting somewhat suspiciously when questioned. He'd paid for his ticket in cash, which was somewhat unusual. The man in question is a 28-year-old British citizen named Richard Reed. Airport personnel question Reed about his background and travel plans and subject him to a thorough search. The French authorities found nothing unusual with the search of his bags, with the search of his person. They had no reason to detain him further, so he was let go. But the interrogation takes so long that Reed misses his flight, so he leaves the airport, only to return the very next morning. This time, he makes it through security with no problem and boards American Airlines Flight 63 en route to Miami. About two to three hours out of Paris, the crew smelled a sulfur smell like a match had been lit. One of the flight attendants came over and found that Richard Reed had one shoe off, holding it in his hand, lighting it with the match. The flight attendant jumped into the empty seat next to him, at which time he bit her hand to prevent her from getting the shoe away from him. At that point, they needed to restrain this big guy fighting with them. But how can this deranged passenger with such seemingly wicked intentions be stopped? On December 22nd, 2001, an American Airlines plane is cruising over the Atlantic Ocean when a flight attendant spots a passenger holding a lit match to his shoe. His name? Richard Reed. Terrified, the crew springs into action. One of the flight attendants began wrestling Reed to put the flame out. And obviously a lot of shouting and commotion was stirred up as a result of this. Other passengers began getting out of their seats and assisting. They needed to restrain him in some way. So the passengers come up with a quick and creative solution to stop the hulking madman. They decided to use what they had at their disposal, which were their waist belts, to restrain him. And it's these very belts used to restrain Reed that are now on display at the museum. Once Reed is subdued, the belts keep him confined to his seat as the flight is diverted to the nearest safe harbor, Logan Airport in Boston, Massachusetts. Hours later, the plane lands safely and Reed is taken into custody by the FBI. But even then, his motives remain shrouded in mystery. What had Richard Reed been trying to do with the lit match on the aircraft? Another artifact in the museum's collection holds the key, Richard Reed's black shoes. And it's only when the FBI performs a thorough analysis of these shoes that the full extent of his harrowing plot is revealed. 
built into the shoe were eight to 10 ounces of explosive material. The shoes that Richard Reed wore were bombs. The goal of the attack was absolutely to kill every individual, including himself, on board the aircraft. But how could Reed's evil scheme and deadly footwear have gone completely unnoticed by airport security? Because there were no metallic items built into the shoe, it was very difficult for any of the detection devices at that time in 2001 to detect the explosives in, within his shoes. Months later, Reed is brought to justice before a federal court in Boston for his attempted act of terrorism and is sentenced to life in prison. Everybody today sees the effects in that when you travel, you have to remove your shoes, have them screened to search for devices similar to what were uh, secreted into Reed's shoes. And at the museum in Washington, D.C., these two sets of everyday fashion accessories, Richard Reed's shoes and the belts used by the passengers to restrain him, forever immortalize a sinister plot and the heroic acts of ordinary citizens who foiled it. The halls of the San Diego Natural History Museum in Southern California are home to a host of treasures. From unearthed gems like this piece of rubellite tourmaline to the fossilized remains of an American mastodon. But deep within the museum's archives, carefully preserved by curator Philip Unit, lies a group of birds connected to one of the region's most bizarre mysteries. The one thing that links all these specimens is that they were all picked up on a single day, the 10th of May, 1974. They were not doing well. Some were already dead and others were dying. So what caused the simultaneous deaths of these 52 birds? Southeastern California, 1905. Heavy spring rains caused the Colorado River to swell and overrun a newly built irrigation system in the dry Imperial Valley. Water rushes into the area for the next 18 months before authorities erect a dam to stem the flow. So this flood generated the largest lake in California, close to 30 miles long. Filling up a desert depression called the Sultan Basin, this new body of water becomes fittingly known as the Sultan Sea. But with the Colorado River now dammed and only irrigation runoff feeding it, the U.S. government assumes the shallow freshwater lake will eventually dry up. To their surprise, it doesn't. And over the next 40 years, more and more people emigrate to the newly fertile land in hopes of exploiting the area's rich agricultural resources. Then, in the 1950s, real estate tycoons recognize the beaches along the Salton Sea have great potential for development. And they seize the opportunity. Dubbed the Salton Riviera, the area draws residents and revelers by the thousands. Sport fishermen introduce 30 species of fish to the sea, and with no predators, they multiply rapidly. I would say that fishing was the number one attraction. But the good times don't last forever. On May 10, 1974, ornithologist Philip Unit and some friends drive to the Salton Sea from San Diego. 
They've heard rumors of trouble at the lake and want to see if they're true. They arrive at the shore to find a shocking sight. Thousands of dead and dying birds. What could possibly be killing off the wildlife population? And what does it mean for the future of this lakeside paradise? A top tourist destination in the desert of Southern California called the Salton Sea has suddenly been swamped by sick and dying birds. What could possibly be causing this freak phenomenon? 1974. Ornithologist Philip Unit and a group of colleagues arrive at the shores of the Salton Sea. What they discover is altogether horrific. We see thousands of birds flopping around in the mud or lying dead. Then, Unit spies a vast field of dead fish floating on the surface of the sea. What could be causing the aquatic animals to die off as well? Scientists collect samples of the water, the fish, and the birds. And when they test the water, they find something shocking. The Salton Sea is no longer a freshwater lake. It's not quite as salty as the Great Salt Lake or the Dead Sea, but uh, it's substantially more salty than seawater. So how did a body of fresh water, originally created by the Colorado River, become so salty? The answer can be found in the area's many agricultural drainage ditches. These channels, which carry runoff from the valley's farms, provide the Salton Sea with its only source of new water. This excess discharge is laden with pesticides, chemicals, and most damaging, salt. And since salt water carries less oxygen than fresh water, the fish are suffocating. But still, this doesn't explain what's killing the birds. The answer to that mystery lies in the rotting fish carcasses. They are creating the perfect habitat for deadly bacteria like botulism, which thrives in the hot, muddy conditions of the Salton Sea. So the birds, including the specimens collected by Philip Unit, have been feeding on the fish and smaller organisms in the infected area, effectively poisoning themselves. Botulism is a pretty terrible thing for birds and people to get. The uh, bacterium produces a very toxic toxin. By the 1980s, the dead animals and rancid water radically alter the public's perception of the once thriving tourist destination. Certainly once the Salton Sea started to get a reputation for not smelling that good, for fish dying off, for toxins accumulating in the water, then its popularity really started to drop off. Without tourists, most locals abandon the area as well, and houses, marinas, and boats are all left behind to rust and crumble. But these birds, preserved at the San Diego Natural History Museum, serve as a vestige of a once vibrant desert oasis that today is a ghost town. Nestled in Northern California's wine country is the picturesque town of Calistoga, home to the Sharpstein Museum. From an early frontier stagecoach to a family kitchen, 
The exhibits here tell the story of the Old West and California's rise to riches. But this collection also includes an artifact that carries with it a dark and grisly past. It's a humble cooking pot that author Marion Calibro asserts was once carried by intrepid pioneers on a great Western migration to the land of plenty. They were early adapters to what America called manifest destiny. Free land out west, let's all go. But instead of parcels and prosperity, the journey brought horror and tragedy and pushed the settlers to the very limits of human endurance. So what part did this simple piece of kitchenware play in the infamous and shocking story of the Donner Party? It's early May, 1846. A party of about 40 men, women, and children set out from Independence, Missouri to make their way to California. There was very little of civilized, quote-unquote, America west of the Missouri at that time. So they would group up on the trail because there is more safety in numbers. The group is led by George Donner, who helms one of the last wagon trains of the year to embark on the four-month journey west. The route follows the famous Oregon Trail through Nebraska, Wyoming, and Idaho before dropping down onto the California Trail, which leads to Sacramento. For the wagon trains, timing of the trip is critical. They must begin the journey after the spring snowmelt and arrive in Sacramento before the fall's first snowstorms. By the time the Donner Party nears Fort Bridger, Wyoming, they've been joined by seven more families, and it's clear the group is lagging behind. However, they've heard tales of a shortcut called Hastings Cutoff that will shave 400 miles from the trip. The Donner Party literally came to a fork in the road. The safe way was the Oregon Trail. But eager to reach the richness of California before winter, on July 31st, they make the fateful decision to take the virtually unknown Hastings Cutoff. Little do they know that this chosen path will bring with it unimaginable hardships. It was one difficult geographic feature after another. Instead of expediting the journey, this so-called shortcut delays the party by about a month. On October 31st, the party reaches the forbidding Sierra Nevada mountain range. When they approach the Sierra, they're racing against time and impending snow. But it's already too late. The season's snowfall begins that night. They do make an unbelievable attempt to summit. And a few of them just can't make it, and they just fall behind. That night, a massive snowstorm rolls in, and the party is forced to set up camp in a barren wood cabin. When they begin to camp, they realize we are in it for the winter. But in spite of their perilous position, the hardy pioneers still hold out hope that a rescue party could save them. Back in September, one of the party members, James Reed, had gone ahead to California on his own to procure supplies and bring them back to the main group. They are waiting every day, hoping that James Reed will get back. But the west side of the mountain pass is just as difficult to climb as the east side, leaving Reed's return nearly impossible. The amount of snow was hardly normal that winter. It started in October, and it just kept snowing. 
what it added up to was 22 feet. It seems the fate of the Donner Party is sealed, with their only route to safety completely engulfed in snow and food supplies running low. They face the grim prospect of starving to death. A group of pioneers trekking to California are facing a life or death situation. Trapped on a mountain in a blizzard and running out of food. How will the men, women, and children of the Donner Party survive? In February 1847, after four freezing months of seclusion and starvation, a rescue party finally reaches the beleaguered pioneers in their cabin in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And what they discover is nothing short of shocking. That first rescue party sees what it thinks are skeletons. These people are so gaunt. One woman calls out in a very weak voice, are you men from California or do you come from heaven? You have to wonder if she herself knew if she was dead or alive at that point. To the rescuer's horror, they soon learn that in order to survive the winter, the Donner Party has been reduced to living off pine nuts, rodents, boiled oxhide, even their own family pets. But the worst is yet to come. The accounts became more and more gruesome to the point where the rescue party is appalled to see bones and detritus. It seems that some members of the party have even eaten their own dead. The survivors preferred not to talk about it, and how much they thought about it was between themselves and God. Finally, by April, all survivors are brought to safety. And with them comes this cooking pot, which may have contained certain unspeakable ingredients that, though ghastly, were crucial to helping some cling to life. Of the original 90, a little more than half survived. The story of the Donner Party's ordeal quickly spreads, becoming a cautionary tale for thousands of westward migrants. And today, this humble cooking pot at the Sharpstein Museum provides tangible testimony to the unimaginable hardship one group of pioneers endured in their quest to reach the promised land. At the historic Auto Attractions Museum in Roscoe, Illinois, visitors can admire history's most elegant presidential vehicles, like this 1962 Lincoln Continental that chauffeured President John F. Kennedy. But not every artifact here has wheels. In a room known as the World Leaders Gallery, there is an intriguing personal effect that historian Stanley Arnold knows discreetly aided the mobility of another political luminary. It's one of a kind. The gold inlaid features on the top and on the bottom and the spiral design, I've never seen anything like it. This ornate object fashioned from the horns of 20 Guernsey bulls is a walking cane that once belonged to none other than President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So what role did this cane play in covering up the leader's greatest secret? A secret that 60 years after his death would become the source of a heated scientific debate. 1921. 
39-year-old Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR as he is known, is quickly moving through the political ranks with an eye on the Oval Office. He was assistant secretary of the Navy under uh, Woodrow Wilson. He's looking uh, both at state and national offices. He's on the move. In August of that year, FDR takes a short break from his burgeoning political career, vacationing with his family on Campobello Island off the coast of New Brunswick, Canada. Roosevelt loves the outdoors. He swims, he runs. He's very healthy. But Roosevelt's relaxing holiday is about to come to an abrupt end. On the morning of August 11th, he wakes up with a fever of 102, body aches, and a troubling weakness in one of his legs. The next day, he can't move either leg, yet feels extreme pain when they are touched. To his terror, he realizes he is paralyzed from the waist down. Over the next two weeks, the paralysis spreads and slowly engulfs his upper limbs, chest, and part of his face. Doctors look at him and they make the judgment that he has come down with polio. Polio is a viral infection that invades the nervous system, sometimes causing permanent paralysis. The diagnosis suddenly throws Roosevelt's lofty political ambitions into jeopardy. How can he demonstrate to the American people that he is healthy and strong enough to run for the highest office in the land when he can barely walk? With an iron will, FDR makes a critical, calculating decision to hide his paralysis from the public. Roosevelt needs to project an image of power, so he was usually photographed or filmed standing or leaning on something or someone. This uh, projected that image that he wanted the American people to, to see. And Roosevelt's strategy pays off. In 1932, he is elected president of the United States, all the while shrewdly concealing the effects of his debilitating disease. During speeches, FDR is able to use the podium to stay on his feet. And he appears in front of the media, seated. In other instances, he masks his handicap by propping himself up on this cane, which is on display at the Historic Auto Attractions Museum. Roosevelt's very well-crafted image was a source of inspiration for millions of Americans during the Depression and later in World War II. But the physical exertion needed to carry out the world's most stressful job while suffering from a crippling affliction eventually takes its toll. And on April 12, 1945, the beloved president's body finally gives out. Roosevelt passes away of a massive stroke. Following his death, the American public finally becomes aware of FDR's nearly 24-year battle with polio and his efforts to keep it a secret. But could our history books actually have gotten it wrong? Sixty years later, a re-examination of Roosevelt's illness sheds shocking new light on his life story. Is it possible that the man most synonymous with the polio virus didn't suffer from the disease at all? When most Americans hear the name Franklin Delano Roosevelt, they think of his great leadership during the Depression, World War II, and his long, agonizing battle with the polio virus. 
But did our 32nd president really even have polio? The answer may surprise you. Galveston, Texas, 2003. A team of doctors at the University of Texas researching the illnesses of historical figures is scrutinizing FDR's medical records. Upon careful examination, they find some inconsistencies between Roosevelt's polio diagnosis and his initial symptoms. Polio is known as infantile paralysis, and uh, it's most common among young children and, and teenagers. Roosevelt was 39 years old, relatively old in terms of contracting polio. Furthermore, the ascending paralysis that eventually reached his face, along with the numbness and sensory pain, are rarely associated with polio. So if, in fact, it wasn't polio, what malady struck down the nation's 32nd president? In November 2003, after months of scrutiny, the Texas research team publishes a report highlighting their new theory. The article argued that he was a victim of a somewhat rare autoimmune disease known as Guillain-Barré syndrome. Guillain-Barré syndrome is a disorder in which the body's immune system attacks healthy tissue in the nervous system, sometimes causing permanent paralysis. It was first described in 1916, so very few doctors were aware of it by 1921, when FDR was first diagnosed with polio. But the only way to prove whether Roosevelt did in fact have Guillain-Barré syndrome is to test his spinal fluid, something that, 60 years after his death, is unfortunately not a possibility, leaving the exact cause of FDR's paralysis an enduring mystery. It's not clear whether we'll ever know what caused Roosevelt's paralysis. But what we can take from this is that here was a man who was extremely adept in uh, shaping his image. It um, was important for the nation to see someone who might not have always been standing up in the traditional sense, but was always standing up for America. And this cane at the Historic Auto Attractions Museum is testimony to the proud legacy of a president whose unflappable courage in the face of both physical and political adversity led our nation out of the darkest of times. From cannibal pioneers to killer footwear, a disappearing jet to an abandoned ghost town. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.